What a sign it is creaking. We see your lost soul with our wandering eye. There's only one light on, and the darkness is creeping. There's only one light, and the chill in the air. We promise you stories for one night only. Come closer to Hello, weary wanderer. Come in. Take a look around. When you finish browsing, why not come warm yourself by the fire? We promise we won't bite. We might even tell you a story. Or two. Maybe offer you a biscuit. Or two. This week, we have orange and cinnamon creams. Now where were we? Ah, yes. On a drizzly December morning in 1945, retired policeman Alexander King took his dog for a walk along the old Torrey foreshore, a familiar route to the both of them. Pulling up his collar to shield from the bracing wind, he approached the shoreline. While he wouldn't consider himself a mudlarker, Alexander did like to collect pieces of unusual driftwood every now and then. A silly habit, perhaps, especially to his old colleagues, but it gave him some sense of happiness. He'd always liked the idea of carpentry and had recently been looking into little projects he could manage. Maybe he could carve it into a Welsh love spoon or a stand to keep his glasses on. In amongst the pebbles and seaweed, there was something white glinting in the early morning light. Perhaps a piece of porcelain had washed up from a sunken ship or a carved pipe had been hiding there for centuries. Either way, Alexander thought it was worth a second look. As he got closer though, it became clear what the thing actually was. Reeling back in shock, Alexander pulled his dog sharply by the lead and ran to the nearest phone box. Resting in the silt was a severed arm. Locals suspected it had washed up from one of the destroyed warships off the coast. Apparently, finding appendages on the beach was pretty common back then. However, after local constables brought it to the station, police surgeon Dr Richards determined that the arm had been deliberately removed using a knife and a saw. Clearly, this was no accident. As with any crime of this nature, it was important to find out how long the arm had been in the water and how, in fact, it had ended up on the foreshore. Professor Sidney Smith from the University of Edinburgh was a friend of Dr Richards, as well as being an esteemed expert in the field of medicine. So with his assistance and some marine scientists, they carried out a rather grisly experiment using the severed legs of local pigs. By dropping these into the water at different spots around Old Torrey, they were attempting to find which direction the arm had come from. 
Had it been dumped off the back of a ship that was leaving port? Or had it floated in from the North Sea? Presumably, they marked each trotter with a number or design in order to differentiate them. To their surprise, the leg which washed up closest to the discovery site was the arm thrown from further down the shore. So far, they knew that the limb had been deliberately detached and had been in the water for no more than 24 hours. This meant that the dismemberment must have taken place on the evening of December 11th. A junior officer was told to visit each business along the shore to see if anyone had noticed anything suspicious that night. In fact, several people noted hearing a shrill scream around midnight, followed by echoing silence. The trouble was, this neighbourhood was home to many pubs where fights between sailors and locals often broke out over alcohol and, more commonly, women. So each witness likely grumbled, turned over and went right back to sleep. Assuming that the arm belonged to someone local, police began looking into their own records to see if there were any matches. Fingerprinting technology had been used in Scotland for over 40 years at this point, and as luck would have it, the victim's fingerprints were already in the system. Betty Haddon had previously been arrested for shoplifting and was known around town to have a scandalous streak, often seen leaving bars on the arms of a sailor. She had a variety of jobs, including domestic servant, waitress, and most glamorous of all, fish gutter. It's worth noting that what we know about Betty is all based on character testimonies from locals who undoubtedly judged her for not acting as society expected young women at the time too. I don't think we should shame Betty for seeking escape from a life that was often elbow deep in fish innards. Despite Betty's undesirable status, the local police thankfully did spring into action. They checked every ship in the harbour for evidence, attempting to track any boat which had left the port on the evening of the 11th and search it at its next stop. Houses across the shorefront were searched tirelessly by officers who even removed sinks for forensic analysis. It's said that housewives across the city kept their homes in pristine condition to be presentable for the inevitable search. Unfortunately, even after their exhaustive efforts, no more evidence was found. By piecing together witness statements, police were able to track Betty's movements in the week leading up to her death. She was last seen in the local B&B, where she was told there were no rooms available. According to the landlady, she left in good spirits. Now this was almost a week before her arm was discovered, so it's hard to say how she actually spent her final days, and in fact, when she was attacked. Did she spend her last days in fear of violence? Or did she just carry on unaware up until the last second? During the investigation, a human leg washed up on a beach a few miles south of Aberdeen, which they hoped would offer more clues. But it was quickly revealed to belong to a man, so they dismissed it. Despite their thorough searches, the months quickly passed by and gradually the public started to forget about poor Betty. John Nicholl, an officer who worked on the case, stated to local press that he believed Betty was killed by a local, who assaulted her, perhaps more savagely than intended, 
and once she had died, he panicked and stuffed her body in a trunk. It's possible that her body was too large to fit, so the murderer removed her arm and discarded it in the water. While they did look into several leads, no one was ever prosecuted. By the following December, the Aberdeen arm mystery had become a cold case. Ten years after the murder, journalist Peter Piper revisited the case with the Scottish Sunday Express, saying, I feel convinced that on the night of 11th of December, she met someone ruthless and brutal and savage enough to attempt, by force, to overcome her. She fought against this man and died, and I believe too that this man lived in Torrey or nearby, or at least had access to some building where he there dismembered the body. Today, the case still remains unsolved. Although Betty had long been forgotten, her arm ended up becoming a macabre attraction. After being preserved in a jar, it was used as a prop at Mariscal College during a lecture on police work. Perhaps the saddest thing about this case is that while the college was being relocated, Betty's arm was thrown out by staff who wanted one less thing to carry. In Greek mythology, fire was a gift from the titan Prometheus. Fittingly, the name Prometheus can be broken down into two distinct halves. Firstly, pro, meaning before, and metheus, derived from the ancient Greek word meaning learn. Taken together, we roughly end up with the English translation being forethought. Prometheus had been forbidden by Zeus to share fire with mankind. He knew his actions would have dire consequences. But when your accomplice is the goddess of wisdom, Athena, it is perhaps easy to believe that you are justified. So we can only assume that this mythological character weighed up his own freedom with the exponential effect that the gift of fire would have on mankind and decided that it was indeed worth the risk. To imagine a world without fire is much harder for the modern mind, as we now know that the sun is an enormous, constantly burning ball of fiery gases. But more than that, a world without fire is a world without light. Even on the darkest nights of the new moon, the stars shine through the sky, and the streetlights outside our windows illuminate the world in ugly, fluorescent yellows. There are rarely times in our lives when our world is plunged into such pitch darkness that we can't even trace the barely there outlines of the world above us. Having said all of this, there is certainly a fascination with the subterranean that pervades popular culture. Our fear of getting lost in a place where one wrong turn could send you spiralling towards the centre of the earth never to be seen again is pretty much unique to caves. If you've ever been in a cave system with all the lights turned out, you probably realised quickly how incredibly screwed you'd be if the lights never came back on. There are countless stories of people who simply wandered off into the darkness never to be seen again, and yet 
Much like those who cage dive with sharks or climb Everest, there are those of us that don't like to be told we can't do something, that it's too dangerous. And so, not only did we set about exploring natural caves, we started making our own. In Australia, underground dugouts were created as a way to escape the suffocating heat of the surface, in some places eventually becoming huge networks making up towns and cities. Coobapedi, situated in the outback of southern Australia, is the largest of all. Originated in 1916, it was set up as a home for the opal miners who moved huge quantities of the precious stone but it's become far more than a cool place to bed for the night. Coobapedi boasts bookstores, bars, and even a church. Oftentimes, these caves carry a spiritual significance. The Elephanta Caves on the island of Garapuri, just off the coast of Mumbai, India, reportedly date back as far as the 5th or 8th century and include caves devoted to both Buddhist and Hindu sculptures and reliefs. And while the city of Edinburgh is a world away from Australia and India, it seems that the tradition of digging down as well as building up are not quite unique to any part of the globe. Most cities sprawl outwards. Edinburgh, however, had other ideas, and it was decided that towering seven-storey residences and steep and sloping streets were the way to go. While the exceedingly tall wooden structures from the 16th and 17th centuries no longer exist, like winding tombs, countless tunnels and man-made cave systems have been excavated from under the city itself. You may have heard of Mary King's Close. You might have even been on the tour, felt the hand of little Annie's ghost brush your own. Or you may know about the Nidri Street vaults, once an upstanding underground housing district that fell to disrepair and became a hub of criminal activity, lost to time until being accidentally rediscovered in the 1980s. But one place you might not have heard of is the mysterious Gilmerton Cove. Gilmerton, now a suburb in the south of Edinburgh, was once a village that can trace its roots back to medieval times. It eventually became home to the local miners and quarrymen and their families, and it would seem that at some point during the 17th century, underneath an unassuming blacksmith's, someone tunnelled 15 feet into the ground and dug an entire house out of the sandstone. If you go on a tour of Gilmerton Cove today, you will find much more than a simple cavern. The cove boasts seven individual chambers, a carved fireplace, a blacksmith's forge, a well, table and chairs. There are carved benches in each room, and even a punch bowl hewn from the same stone. Excitingly, after a sonar sweep was conducted above ground, there's now reason to believe that the cove could be twice as big as originally thought, as two of the tunnels were backfilled and are currently impossible to access. Despite all of this, there is no concrete evidence to indicate who may have decided to undertake this intriguing project, or why? The most widely accepted theory is that the cove was created by George Patterson, a blacksmith who owned the forge which used to sit atop it. It's believed that over a five-year period, between 1719 and 1724, Patterson carved and completed the subterranean dwelling by hand 
as a place for his family to live. Despite this apparently virtuous reasoning for such a project, Patterson was later brought up on charges of supplying drink on the Sabbath, which was not very Christian of him. For years, an inscription by the poet Pennycook above the fireplace in the cove was taken as proof that Patterson was the creator. Upon the earth thrives villainy and woe, but happiness and I do dwell below. My hands hewed out this rock into a cell, wherein from din of life I safely dwell. On Jacob's pillow nightly lies my head, my house when living, and my grave when dead. Inscribe upon it when I'm dead and gone, I lived and died within my mother's womb. More recently, it has come to light that there is no record of the inscription being there until after 1890, over a hundred years after George Patterson would have finished carving. This claim falls apart the more examination is done on the cove. There are archaeologists who have stated that not only would it be an impossible undertaking for one man to complete over a five-year period, but that due to the fact that the walls seem to be carved using pointed tools rather than a chisel or the traditional tools of a blacksmith. If this is correct, then these pointed tools could mean that Gilmerton Cove is over a hundred years older than originally thought. And these aren't the only things that have led Atlas Obscura to name the cove a series of Scottish caves that has no clear purpose other than baffling historians. Despite the claims that it was lived in, there is no blackening around either the fireplace or the forge to indicate usage. And then there are the rumours about a local Hellfire Club. While there don't seem to be any records, there is a theory that one of the block tunnels was a way for the members of one sect of the supposedly salacious club to enter the cove discreetly, where they could then conduct their revelries. There are similar stories about a series of underground caves in West Wickham, Buckinghamshire, being used by a Hellfire Club as a base for the ritual abuse of women and hosting Black Mass. Although this is likely rumour, it is true that these clubs, hosted by the untouchable gentry, were used as an excuse for them to indulge in societal taboos. Although mostly operating out of England and Ireland, there is a story that a group calling themselves a Hellfire Club burnt down the Tron Church in Glasgow in 1793, so there is reason to think that there could have been a club such as this operating in Edinburgh around the same time. There are, of course, those who claim that Gilmerton Cove was a secret meeting place for witches. If you've been listening to the last few episodes, you'll have noticed a pattern here. With the name being derived from the now ubiquitous Coven, it's true that in Scotland, the only safe place for witches to gather was probably an underground hideout, but this theory is most likely born out of Edinburgh's historic obsession with and fear of witchcraft. Like anywhere else in the city, the cove has its own ghosts, although you are hard-pressed to find somewhere in Edinburgh that doesn't. Reportedly, there are two child ghosts, a girl and a boy that can be seen and heard giggling and playing in the depths of the cove itself, and there are eyewitnesses who describe a spectral figure lying across the threshold, a ghostly member of the Hellfire Club perhaps, drunk after a night of illicit revelries, or the unwilling sacrifice of a coven of witches. Either way, 
It is unlikely that Gilmerton Cove will divulge its secrets, though perhaps they are closer than we think, lying hidden behind a backed-up tunnel, almost within arm's reach. Hello, hello! I am Jasper. And I am Meg. And welcome! It always feels kind of weird doing the welcome, like almost... Welcome! <laughs> to Wandering Eye Curios. Yes, we hope you have enjoyed this week's spooky stories. Some spooky ones and some sad ones. Yeah. Poor Betty, man. Honestly, yeah. like... She just... Oh, I hope that one day somehow people find her body and she can be laid to rest properly. Do you think they'd even recognise it if they found it now? I don't know, because they had Betty's fingerprints on file. Yeah, but, then, but after a while yeah. the skin starts to slough off yeah, a corpse. This is very true. It depends how she, if she was kept in a trunk, there may possibly mm. be a way we can tell. But Do you follow Carla Valentine on Instagram? Of course. Yeah, did you see the finger mm. printing thing? We love Carla Valentine. Yeah, she's like our fave mortician. Sorry, mm. Kaylin Dodi. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you didn't need to put that in. <laughs> I feel bad. I like her. <laughs> no, she's great. But Carla was my first mortician love. Your first and mortician love. Yes, I really want to go and see uh, the museum that she works yeah. in at St. Bart's. Um, but yeah, she had a really interesting Instagram post about fingerprinting the dead. Mm. And because basically as you start to decompose you can get to a point where the skin starts to literally slide off yeah. and so sometimes it's possible to literally slide the skin of a hand off mm. of the corpse to wear on your own hand to fingerprint it which is i think there was a picture as well in there of someone just they didn't have a glove on maybe uh. i'm remembering right, but that just that's like a worse nightmare to me is like yeah. wearing people gloves that's some Hannibal shit. Yeah, it really yeah, is. That's fucked up. But yeah, Carla's amazing. Um, Jasper's finally finished past Morton's. Oh my god, it took uh, me or so long to read. Which is amazing. Um, I actually, uh, I used to be a bookseller, uh, which is how Jasper and I met. Were we? Um, so I think it must have been three, two years ago, I think, during the Cheltenham Literary Festival, which happens every year in October. Um, Carla, I hadn't actually read the book yet, but I'd read the blurb and was very, very intrigued. She sounded very spooky. Um, and my manager at the time, hey Rachel, if you're listening. <laughs> Shout out! <laughs> we miss you. Um, she said to me, you know, uh, it's up to you which queue you want to manage as a bookseller. Do you want to manage Carla Valentine's queue or Lionel Shriver's? And... It was hard, man. Like, I hadn't even read Carla's book yet, but I knew I was intrigued. But obviously... We need to talk about Kevin traumatised me. And if you know anything about me, you know I love books that traumatise me. <laughs> yes, I'm that kind of person. Deal with it. I um, read, like, solidly YA. Yeah, no. Give me creepy <laughs> like, shit or give me 9 YA. to 12. Gay YA. Gay yeah. YA. 9 to 12 mysteries or creepy shit. There is no in-between. Okay. Anyway, so I decided on Carla, and I'm so happy I did. She is... Obviously incredibly interesting, has so much knowledge, not only about um, death and how we deal with death as human beings, but also about um, historical diseases. Uh, she is, I think, a professor of Barts, or the lead, head curator, I think. She, so Barts has had a collection mm. of uh, 
sort of body parts that have been afflicted by various maladies um and they've basically collected them over hundreds of years and it was only a few years ago that they decided to actually curate them into something um which is when carla was brought in uh to manage it as a museum Mm. and to catalog everything and get it all set out so it is actually somewhere that uh well you can't visit everything you can visit stuff that's really really old Mm -hmm. but a lot of newer stuff legally you're not allowed to see um but yeah that's what that's what she does so she's not a professor but she she curates she curates um but as well as that she's also just an incredibly funny and interesting human being so after um, she had done her signing, this was after her event at the Literary Festival, so she met and signed the books of people who'd attended her event. Uh, myself and one of my very good friends, Amber, uh, who's also a bookseller, um, we chatted to her for ages, um, and at the time, she's married now, but she was due to have her wedding in Graveyard uh, that October, I'm pretty sure on Halloween. Probably. Um, which is <laughs> um, and we chatted about lots of different things about how like mad her life must be but how amazing um, and Amber at the time was wearing the perfume from Lush called Lust uh, which is very popular and uh, Carla kindly informed us that that is the best perfume to cover up the smell of formaldehyde mm. so whatever you wish to do with that information Wouldn't is you know entirely it? up to you mm. but mm-hmm. it comes straight from a mortician's lips Mm-hmm. 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 It's, an, it's a really excellent book it, it's part sort of um, insight into mortuaries and what happens there um, and just what happens to you once you die because it's not a conversation that's that's had very often but it's also quite biographical for her so it feels really personal which I think helps because I think death can be very scary and that it feels very impersonal Mm -hmm. and so it coming from someone who is as warm as she is and as lovely uh it really makes a difference which is like caitlin i say dodie because that's how she pronounces it but i would Mm. say doughty because i'm really english um but she is on youtube as ask a mortician she's also an author she wrote um from here to eternity no, that's yes, yeah. She wrote, she wrote, well. yeah, yeah, she wrote that, and she also has written a book that I can't wait to read. That's just come out and paid for back, called "Will My Cat Eat My Eyeballs," which is questions from kids about death that she mm. answers, and I'm so ready for it. But anyway, she's fantastic for answering. She has an amazing series called um, "Iconic Deaths." No, "Iconic Corpses." It's called "Iconic Corpses," and people have done some strange ass things too dead bodies um <laughs> a lot of the time of famous people um but she she really myth busts and she's super into um what we call death positivity mm. which is not like yay dead people Ooh. it's more like we're all gonna die but it's okay and it doesn't have to be a bad thing it doesn't have to be something that we're scared of because over here in the west we tried to pack death away and, mm. you know, ignore it um, as much as we can. Embrace your dead. <laughs> Not literally. Yeah. Not literally. No. But she's fantastic, so definitely. She's my YouTube shout out mm. for this week. Cool. Um, 
Yeah. Carla also has, um, I don't know whether it was a specific uh, YouTube series, but there's a good couple of um, episodes that you can find on YouTube. We'll try and link it on the Instagram. Um, that are talking about different STDs and sort of which professions would have received them or received them, had them, <laughs> caught them uh, back in the olden days. It's very interesting. She also turns up on uh, the Netflix show Death by Magic. Oh my with god. With Drummond Money Coops. The shiniest head in magic. The shiniest man. <laughs> the most posh man of all time. His who's name is Money Coops. Money Coops. <laughs> He's amazing. It's a really good show. It's about... Um, he's very pretty. He's very pretty. He's very tall. Mm. He's a pretty He's like six foot five. That's not that tall. You're just short. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's a very, very fun show and very stressful show because essentially he recreates all the magic tricks that have killed magicians in the past. Um, so in every single episode, you're like, well, he's definitely dead. I started he's rewatching died. it, but I forgot oh, how much yeah. it stresses me. It's very me. tense, Ow. but it's very, very good. And then I can't even remember what episode it is, but I, were we watching it? I think we were watching it together. And at the time you didn't really know. We were, Carla. yeah, I didn't know. Wait, it, I, was it the Edinburgh? No, I think it must've been the London episode, but there's an episode in Edinburgh yes, there is. and that's really cool because he was there for like the one time it snowed and it yes. looks really, yeah. Edinburgh's so pretty in the it snow. Is. Um, um, but sorry. yeah, no, no, you're fine. She, uh, Carla turned up and I think I screamed. I was like, oh <laughs> she, is, she is your girl crush. I love her. She really is. I love her. She's so cool. She's like pin up, pin up, scary lady. Yeah. No, she's not even a scary lady. She's just rad. But yeah, go follow Carla Valentine. Mm-hmm. She has a um, podcast of her <gasps> own, yes. which you've listened to more than me. So yes. I'll let you talk about so that. it's produced with bbc sounds um so not only is it fantastic and informative but there's also a real good amount of sound design that's gone into it it feels very atmospheric it's called mortems um so when i first started listening to it i thought it was just going to be carla sort of like us telling um in this shit talk episode part <laughs> um just having a chat about all the stuff that she knows Which i still would have listened to yeah, yeah, yeah obviously um but actually it's far more storytelling it's far more um they pick, uh, they essentially create fake victims uh, in order to sort of do justice to people, um, but use sort of real experts and they tell stories of these really interesting, strange crimes. So one of the uh, episodes is about a man who is found, um, well, his body is found burnt in a forest clearing. And initially they think potentially it's suicide then they think it's murder, then they're not quite sure. But she goes through talking to each of these uh, experts in their field. So you've got blood spatter um, analysts, you've got police officers, um, obviously Carla gives her own um, walkthrough of a autopsy, which is really interesting. Um, and if you're squeamish, is a little bit gross. Uh, she does warn you of that when it's coming up, so don't worry too much. But yeah, Morton's on, um, everywhere you get podcasts really but it is made by bbc sounds mm. and um the podcast as well run by caitlin Dodie and her two assistants which might just be called the ask a mortician podcast um but that's that's fantastic because they all have different no it's called death in the afternoon mm. and it's fantastic amazing but they all have they all come from different backgrounds in terms of um, speaking about uh, death in like a, a Mexican culture.
context what I look like. They all okay. they all have their own. I can't remember if it is. It's been a while since I've listened to it. But they all have different, um, uh, like ancestral backgrounds, mm-hmm. which gives them different takes on death, like within their family and from their own experience. And um, they just they speak with the utmost compassion, and it it can be pretty funny at times. Um, which the YouTube channel definitely is. Um, as much as it's about death, it is hilarious. Um, but yeah, so I, ju- I, yeah, they're definitely two two podcasts. Yeah. Uh, to check out. It's also really rad, in any way, to hear about women dominating the field. But they but it's are especially yeah. It's like, it's amazing, especially in medicine, mm. to hear two women who are fucking badasses who mm. are incredible at their job and they're getting the recognition that they deserve. Mm-hmm. I haven't read much of it, but another one to mention is Professor Sue Black, oh. who um, all that remains. I think yeah, I think yeah. that's the book. I I never got around to reading it unfortunately. But as far as I'm aware, that's more, much more in depth in the science. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're someone who doesn't really want sort of the lighthearted, just wants the, the plain the facts. The forensics, really. Uh, Sue Black is a really, really good one. Because isn't she the preeminent for. Scottish forensic As far as I'm aware, it, it won a Scottish book prize a little while ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, Val McDermott has a... Yeah, uh, God, I've not read forensics. Yeah, forensics. Just forensics. Yeah, so yeah. Val McDermott, who, if you don't know who Val McDermott is, she is like the lesbian of all lesbians, just putting that out there. And Nicola Sturgeon loves her. I was going to say she's a very prominent crime author, but that too. <laughs> yes, um, she's fab. Um, but yeah, she obviously she has written so many crime books, which has so many different crimes. And murders and poisonings uh-huh. and all these kind so of things. So many, so many. And I've never actually read her, which is fab. But she obviously puts in a lot of research and she brought out a book called Forensics quite a long time ago now. Um, and I read it quite a while ago. But again, really, really interesting. Um, she goes through a couple of different cases in Scotland uh, and just, again, goes into the science. But you have that sort of funny, sort of slightly lighthearted look at it. Mm. Uh, I will say, though, and this is no fault of Val's. Um, I got my copy from the library and as I turned one of the pages there was a mysterious brown stain that like I, I think was that. blood yeah. and no thank you like I don't need to do my own tests <laughs> of forensics I just want to read the book it's just an opportunity no it might have been chocolate it might have been something else but I think it was dried blood and it was not okay so yes <laughs> I'm just putting it out there don't put your body fluids on, li- on liquid that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Don't put your body fluids on like Don't books. put your body fluids anywhere. That too. If they're going to come out of your body, put them in the bin. <laughs> Just keep them to yourself. <laughs> anyway, I have been Meg. I have been Jasper. Just before we go, though, I want to tell you very oh, yes. quickly Sorry, about a place in Scotland called Bonnie Rig. Mm which supposedly has upwards of 300, or has had upwards of 300 UFO sightings, which mm-hmm. makes it one of the most prominent, um... UFO sighting areas? Yeah, I didn't want to repeat myself, but <laughs> basically, yeah, so, um, if you really want to see an alien, you, uh, you don't have to go to the states you don't have to break into area 51 just yeah. we got aliens here just pop up here and um have a look in what is apparently called the falkirk triangle Ooh. 
which I haven't researched, but I'm amusing. Uh, I'm I'm assuming is a shit version of the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, I, I mean, can only assume. Is it as good as the pubic triangle? Nothing's as good as the pubic triangle. This is true. We need to explain this. Do we? No. Look it up. <laughs> Enjoy. Wandering Eye Curios is brought to you by myself, Jasper Chanter, and my co-host, Meg James. The podcast is scripted and performed by both of us and produced by me. Music is scored and performed by Amy Marianne, with lyrics by myself. Our intro song, For Better or Worse, is sung by us. Find us on Instagram at WanderingEyeCurios and over on Twitter at WanderingEyePod. Stay spooky, friends. Until next time.